culture eats strategy for breakfast. Hey there, and welcome to the Idea Revolution Podcast, the podcast for post-startup entrepreneurs who are seeking to break out of the same old tired ideas and dive into some truly creative thinking about their business. I'm Rick Thomas, and for today's podcast, we'll be beaming in Jason Graham Nye all the way from Sydney, Australia, to talk about company culture, nested hierarchies, teal organizations, and just about anything else we can think of related to implementing and sustaining a viable company culture. Listen up, as I'm sure there's some wisdom in here for all of us. Joining me today, all the way from Sydney, Australia, is, um, is Jason Graham Nye, uh, founder and CEO of uh, G-Diapers, a U.S.-based eco-friendly baby diaper company, as well as a consultant to venture-backed CEOs who want to get their culture right. Today, we're, we're going to be talking about culture. And, you know, when, when I was kind of brainstorming with, with, with Nick about, you know, who do we tap into to really dive into this, this topic, your name was the first one that came to mind. Let's maybe use that as a starting point, because y- you seem to me, Jason, like you are a culture prophet. And, and so take <laughs> us back. So take us back in, when was it in your career, um, whether it was at G-Diapers or some other um, career experience that you had, when culture really began to speak to you? When, when, did, when did you wake up to that? I think it was, uh, so my background, I'm from Sydney, Australia, which is why I sound a little funny. Um, and and I, I, did a, I did a degree in Japanese and economics. And so my first job out of university, out of college, was at Nomura Securities, which is the biggest stockbroking firm in the world. And it's one of the oldest Japanese companies in the world. And I was a stockbroker. And obviously, you dropped into a different culture, a Japanese culture. I was 23, and I had to get to the office before my boss, which was like, 10 to 6 in the morning, even though the market didn't open to like 10 or something. And I had to leave after he left, which is about 9 o'clock at night. So there was like little observations like that. But the big wake-up call, I think, was three years in, so I was 25 or so, I noticed, you know, the 35, 36-year-old folks there um, were sort of working their way through their first divorces. And um, that wasn't very wow. pleasant to look at. And uh, yeah. there was a lot of money on the table, for sure. But um, uh, it, watching, watching that was a, helped me think about, for me personally, do I really want to be in this, in this culture of just um, making as much money as you can? Um, and the answer was, a, was no. So I I'd studied a, a, an education degree at night and became a high school Japanese teacher in, back in Sydney, which is a very different culture. It's kind of interesting. It's, right. uh, it, was a, it was just a boys' school and... Uh, the interaction with the kids was fantastic. Uh, I got a, a pay cut of about 70% and had to work. Yeah, I was going to say, hard. that's two, two um, ends of the spectrum there. <laughs> well, it was fascinating, though, and culturally it's interesting because, you know, you've got the relationship between teacher and student, teacher and parent, teachers and other teachers, teachers and the headmaster, teachers and the council, which is sort of like the board. And this was um, a school that was a private school and pretty expensive. So the the um, the clientele, I suppose you could say, were 
fairly well off and so that created different kinds of cultures and expectations and you know parent teacher nights often devolved into i've paid my money where's my return on investment because many of these right. parents were uh, investment bankers and they framed parenting through the eyes of a return on investment and i used to have to gently remind them that their son wasn't um an equity investment and there's no dividends <laughs> to be paid and um, if, you'd right. like to, if you'd like to work with me, we can collaborate and have a great result here. So that was sort of my second experience with culture, very different. Japanese stockbroking, financial markets, cutthroat, grim really, you know, uh, and then the second one yeah. was not a lot of money, but really <laughs> so much meaning. And the, the students I taught back then are still friendly with today um, and great memories. Um, so that was my second thing. And then, um, then we, my wife and I, we went dating 200 times and wrote a book called Great Dates, Romantic's Guide to Australia, which was a great tax write-off. <laughs> Every time we went out for dinner, we claimed a business expense and we, we launched a business called Tooth Company Boutique Event Management. We worked with high net worth individuals to create once-in-a-lifetime events. And that was a bit of a peek in back into sort of that classic top town, big listed company CEO world where the, the wife or the PA the personal assistant would call to say, oh, I've got to organize my husband's 50th. Can you do it for us? And you got a little sense of into the, the world, the wonderful world of the politics of big companies. Anyway, yeah, we, we had right. a child, we had a child happened upon some interesting IP around baby diapers, flushable, compostable baby diaper and launched a business. We moved from Sydney, Australia to Portland, Oregon. And immediately I thought, oh, here's an opportunity to think about culture differently. Like, let's not do this blindly. Let's be intentional about the kind of culture we want. And I yeah, went for right. a walk. Uh, yeah, I went for a walk in the woods with a guy uh, in Portland who was referred to me by my sister, and um, he became our first hire, which was like a contract chief culture officer. And it was of all the things in the last twelve years, it's the one the thing that's really stuck with me. And and how you how you hire, how you fire, how you run a retreat, how you uh, how you have hard conversations with your colleagues, how to um, all of those things that you don't really think of when you're starting a company. You're focused on the product and raising capital and the, who's the first customer. Right. If for me, the culture bit is fascinating. And this idea of culture eats um, strategy for breakfast is one that resonates with me. And, you know, the other one is Tony Shea at Zappos, who, you know, the, the shoe delivery company, he's written the book on happiness. And the business he had before Zappos was a $400 million business that he sold to Microsoft. And the culture was so right. broken. He couldn't bear to get out of bed and go to work. He hated it. Hmm. And that was interesting for me that he built a successful company financially, but from a people perspective, he hated the thing that he built himself. And that's always right. sort of stuck with me. So that's a quick run into why I'm so curious about culture. And I, I think it's yeah. every business is the same, right? It's just a group of people. So help us kind of um, look under the hood, so to speak, um, because it seems to me, I mean, it, it, what you hear about culture at times tends to be a bit uh, maybe somewhat abstract, but I, I've got to think there's some very uh, tangible and concrete aspects to it of which are not all that easy. In your experience, what, what have been the hard lessons, Jason, that you've had to figure out, you've learned, um, or just have kind of stumbled on along the way in, in building the business? I think, um, you know, the early days, somewhat like getting married, um, there's a lot of excitement. Um, yeah. There's great hopes. 
Um, if it's a company that needs outside capital, you're going to spend some time putting a vision together of this amazing future that involves racing to a liquidity event and exit in three to five years, and it's going to be amazing. And you use that sort of enrolment to build that initial team. And mm. you, you, you know, this is 12 years ago, and I think I think it's interesting now where the millennials are at the heart of their the, the beginning of their careers, and I think. Millennials are probably far more apt to go and do their own, to launch their own business in some ways because there aren't the jobs there before. Um, yeah, and I'm curious. Let me interject a question. Yeah. I'll call it a challenge, and for lack of a better description. But is, is that similar to uh, culture in Australia as it is in the work culture here in the States? Yeah, yeah. It's identical. And it's all awesome. Okay. And they're, they're incredible. And yeah, yeah, we see it here in Australia that the propensity for them to go out and do their own thing is incredible. And watching how right. the harnessing the internet to launch things is incredible. So, yeah. And I think if people, if millennials are within an organization, you can create structures that let them sing. And we're seeing that at the moment uh, in our own business. But um, the, yeah. back to the original question, sort of reflecting back to yeah. 12 years ago, being in the diaper business, you, you live in three-year cycles because customers come in for only three years. And so 12 right. years is... Four cycles of parents, and it's weird because we're parents and we were at ground zero 12 years ago. Um, if I think back to 12 years ago, it does feel like a millennia ago, just to frame in. Amazon was still selling books and CDs. Facebook wasn't yeah. invented. Uh, we have this awesome page that I think is still live on MySpace. Um, <laughs> you know, we, have, we still have the Yahoo user group with 5,000 mums. For some reason, it's still there, even though I think Yahoo's gone under. Um, wow. So it was a very different time. But we recruited, back to the culture question, we, we recruited people on the promise of a dream and um, the dream being we're going to reinvent this category and we're going to sell to some big, um, we're going to create a, a successful business and there's going to be a liquidity event and laying that vision out to people who are leaving well-paid jobs and they've, uh, they're probably going to take a lower salary but they're going to get stock and uh, we wanted to be flexible. We're a groovy Portland company. Um, if you know they, uh, that Spiral Dynamics thing, we're a very green company, a very you know, inclusive, uh, flat, no hierarchy kind of company. And we hired our first one, two, three, four, five people in very different ways. You know, the four-day-a-week VP of marketing, um, flex-friendly, on-site childcare. And away we went. And there was great promise. And there was great growth. And then, and then yeah. there wasn't. <laughs> and it was like, oh, shit. Wait, aren't we done already? Oh, no, we're not. <laughs> this, is, this is a living, breathing organism known as a company. And we had growth and then we had the opposite of growth. And then managing it all, um, expanding into Europe, yeah. you know, uh, hiring a UK team, managing the cultural differences was huge. Um, so it's been incredible. Um, and many, I mean, many, not many companies get to 12 years, really. I mean, 90% of companies fail in year one. The stats for year right. three is pretty bad. Um, you know, 75% of VC-backed companies fail, according to Harvard Business Review. So we're in a bit of a unique position because we've gone through a whole bunch of cycles. Um, but I think uh, there is this romantic notion that the founding team will be there until the exit, and that's that hasn't been the case. And it's taken me a bit of it, time to get over that. I feel bad. Yeah, so, so, so tell me, is that, do you think that's tougher for, for you and 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 Kim as founders, or 
or for the team themselves that are recognizing, gosh, this didn't turn out like I had hoped or thought it would? I think it's probably equally hard, but for different reasons. For the mm. founders like Kim and I, it's like, you know, there's a lot of sweat equity in there. There's like, like yeah. and raising a family and, you know, our kids who are 14 and 12 now are sort of replaying back to us. They're very much in the business. It's like, oh my God, we've dragged these poor children through this experience. <laughs> so it's, it's hard, right? But we, we yeah. believe us and we, we, we keep picking ourselves up and going, let's go. Um, and we're fully invested emotionally, financially, physically in every way. Um, for the team, I think, um, you know, it's, it's different, but similarly hard. Like they've left money on the table to go and do this crazy startup that, that at least in the first three to five years didn't pay off the way they thought it would. Um, and then, you know, through the process of, okay, what's the business missing? How are we, how are we going to get the business to grow again? Um, you know, their skill set doesn't, fit anymore or they're exhausted or they really need market income now. Thank you very much. They, right. they need to move on. Um, or, you know, in some cases they moved on and got better jobs, which for me, and on, on reflection, I think my goal is in terms of culture is to create a, a team of leaders, a team of leaders who are learners. And there's that beautiful leader and learning mm. and leading and learning. And I think success as I reflect on it now, isn't, the founding team will be together and then we exit and we all have this big party. I think real success is whoever joins the company, whatever stage of a company is the company has a responsibility to grow that employee so that in two to three to four years, they, they head out and they, they grow into a leader themselves, start their own business or get into leadership in another company. That is true success. It's not yeah. very often stated and it requires investment from the company, investment in terms of let's create structures that make that happen. Um, so that's been a recent, a late realization. If I knew that 12 years ago, we might be in a different place. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, say a little bit more about that. I mean, as you think about, uh, uh, what, and perhaps who is, is successful in that kind of environment, um, and with those kind of expectations, what, what are the qualities you would have focused on, what are some of the different qualities you would have focused on in terms of who you recruit into the organization versus, you know, when you did back then? Yeah, I think, and it's been, you know, we, we've gone through a reinvention recently and I'm very much grounding it in a, a book called Reinventing Organizations by Lalu. And it's a, it's a great book and it really lays out sort of the historical where companies have come from by color in a way. And so red is the very base kind of classic top-down, pretty brutal dictatorship-style thing to amber, which is kind of military, school-based. Orange, which is what yeah, you see as a... Yeah, the spiral dynamics. The orange is that classic sort of listed company, still lots of boxes and hierarchy. Um, and then right. the, the great things out of that was the sort of innovation and competition. And the next level is green, which is very much where we were, which is very, the archetype there is family. And uh, there's mm. some great things about it. We talk about shared values in a green company and we talk about, um, uh, you know, very much participatory decision-making, which, which is good. But to each of these colours and stages, there are some dark sides. And some of the dark sides to being green is, um, is it's so participatory and everyone gets a voice, meaning a decision makes six, takes six months. And that family archetype is a big red flag because uh, I don't know about you, but I, families are... Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a tough <laughs> to run a company on, you know. 
there's a mom and a dad yeah. or some favored siblings and some unfavored siblings. And it's like, holy right. God. You know, there might be a propensity to never <laughs> fire anyone because you can't really fire family. And so the, right. the, the next level is called teal. And so we're really interested in teal and the elements of teal we have as a company already things like wholeness, bringing your whole self to work, creating a space where your whole self's allowed to be. So we have a lot of parents who work with us. We have on-site childcare. We do a lot of meditation at work to give people the ability to step back and breathe. Um, another right. element of, of, of teal is self-management. And the beauty is there's a lot of teal companies out there. In fact, our recruiter in Toronto is 100% teal, meaning they all, mm. they all, choose, they all choose their own salaries. Anyone can make any decision they like. All they have to do is two things. Ask someone with expertise to give them advice and ask everyone who's going to get impacted by that decision. And then it's on them to make the call. Uh, There are no titles. It's it's really fascinating because it's described Mm. as nested hierarchy. It's not no hierarchy because often people hear self-management and say no management. It's nested hierarchy, which means, okay, we've got to do, we've got a project with Amazon, a retailer. Who's going to lead that? Um, now, I might be the founder, but I'm not going to lead that because Heather is much better placed and she works with, with Amazon every day. And then it's on right. her to ask people with expertise. Heather is she your ask, customer service. Yeah. yeah. So she might yeah, ask our right. CFO for the finance. She might ask expertise from our CFO who's got great experience in retail. She might ask me for yeah. something. So that's the expertise piece. Then she'll go on the other side and say, who's this going to impact? Well, it's going to impact the CFO again from a financial standpoint if it's like a promotion that's going to cost money. It might impact our fulfillment person. So that framework for me is really, really interesting. So if anyone's interested, read the book uh, Re- uh, Reinventing Organisations. It comes in a comic book and you buy it online for nothing. And then in, in a month's time, you choose how much you're going to pay for it. It's very clever. Um, oh, fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. So, um, uh, so as I think we're, we're going through a hiring process now, um, and in fact, this recruiter is a B corporation, so uh, interested in triple bottom line businesses, but they are going to hire this next person for us through that teal lens. And so to answer your question in a long-winded way, it's about finding people who can lean in and be comfortable leading. Mm. And for a lot of it's a lot of unlearning because you get taught on the job to ask your boss for this or that, and that needs to be unlearned. Um, right. And you need to be able to um, see, think, think about um, what's needed and how can you can contribute. A key concept in this teal piece is around evolutionary purpose. So traditional orange businesses, uh, three to five year budget cycles, um, trying to predict the future and the whole energy is around command and control. How can I control the future? But we know that doesn't work because you really can't control the future. The theme with Teal is sense and respond. So how do you get a team into a mode of sense Mm. and respond where you're not spending hours doing a three-year strategic plan, but really, so what you need, you need tools to get people into the present so they can sense, sense, get self-reflective, where's my mind at in this meeting, and then responding appropriately. So another tool that we're doing is in every interaction, like after this conversation with you, Rick, uh, in an all-team meeting, at the end of the meeting, you'd say, okay, everyone, let's assess that meeting. How was, how was that for everyone? And someone might say, actually, I've got to be honest, I was really checked out. There's something happening at home and I just can't get out of my head. Or someone else might mm. say, I think that was a really good meeting. Or someone else might say, 
I don't know. I think the marketing department sort of dominated that conversation and I wasn't sure how to express that. So what happens right. as a group is you get what is known as on the balcony. You get on the balcony of life looking down on the stage of what's happening in front of you. And that third party, that third person view of things is very powerful. Gets you into a different headspace. Yeah, right, right. Wow, that, that sounds, it, it, I'll be honest, it challenges my convention. <laughs> I mean, of organizational hierarchy and, and admittedly, you know, I'm, I'm the proverbial recovering engineer, so <laughs> I like structure, I like clarity, you know, swimming lanes, you know, and, and so <laughs> swimming lanes, it's like, man, I've got this swimming lane, get out of my swimming lane, <laughs> you know, oh God, I've got this, funny. but um, so that, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like you're in the process of reinventing the organization around this teal kind of ethos. Uh, yeah. for lack of a better term. Is it a function of, hey, we're just going to have to pull people in here that have the predisposition to really wrap their heads around this? Or um, are, are you able to kind of lay a path of breadcrumbs for people to, to get there that are already in the organization? Yeah, so this is how we described it. There's a difference between mm. complicated and complex. Complicated mm. is, a, is a 747 jet airline with 100,000 parts. And as an engineer, you'll appreciate that because that's engineered built, <laughs> you can pull out right. one. If you pull out one element and put another one in, you know exactly what's going to happen. Like you really know what's going right. to happen. Like if you take the engine out, it's not going to take off. That's complicated. Yeah. And there's a lot of moving yeah. parts. Complex is the spaghetti bolognese I had last night. The spaghetti bolognese I had last night had very few ingredients, but... If I pull on a thread of spaghetti, I, I couldn't tell you the prediction. I couldn't predict what's going to happen. But if I'm in that sort of sense and response mode, I can pull it a little bit and see is there a knot there, meaning I'm going to introduce one thing into the organization that has a teal element to it, like that assessment after a meeting. And if there's mm -hmm. a knot there and it stops, as a team, we can say, okay, what's happening for everyone? And then, yeah. like, if, if I was to drop in tomorrow and say, hey, everyone, no more titles, and you can all choose your salary, that's that's a disaster. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but you've got yeah, to right, right. It's this, it's this constant, you know, you're going to try something and it's going to be iterative. Um, and uh, it's, it's about the team uh, really working as a group of leaders to say, yeah, that worked really well. Let's do more of that. Or, you know what? I think that wasn't implemented well, but I think if we did this, it would be good. But it requires right. everyone leaning in. If people are sitting back and there's a passivity to it, that's challenging. Um, and yeah. I think what we're learning about with Teal is that it's, there's a level of self-organization, which if you've got someone in the group who is kind of leaning out and like not really engaging, then there's an opportunity to say, help me understand what's not working here. Is this the right place for you to work? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. For us, you know, we've got a team that we're sort of half Teal and half Orange, so there's no real issue. What's really interesting, though, is hiring a new person out of the gate and going, oh, I wonder if I wonder how we, you know, can we identify someone who, um, who, can, um, who can really display those two qualities? Um, right. But one of the challenges, though, is we're 12 years in, right? So it's really interesting from a, hey, we're really, we're, we can no longer say we're an exciting new startup. We've been in the trenches for 12 years. So it's mm. very different. Mm. So the, the kind of the pitch 12 years ago was, <clears> hey, we're exciting and new. We're going to reinvent this category. And in three to five years, something 
exciting is going to happen financially to today, we still have a massive transformational purpose around ending waste as we know it, about being a company right. that is regenerative. We, we are regenerative in terms of we create a product that regenerates, so from waste to resource, and we are regenerative in terms of the people in the business. We haven't succeeded gotcha. until people can go to work fired up and energetic and not at the end of the day leave collapsing in a heap. There has to be some level of regeneration. So that's why we have meditation. That's why we are trying constantly to work on a healthy work culture. And like we know that right. this idea of bringing your whole self to work is, um, is one part of that. Fascinating. So, so let me ask about, um, about values in, in, in this organizational uh, structure or lack of structure of this teal. Lots of structure, uh, engineer, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I know you're doing that just to appeal to me. Yeah, no, I know, I know. But I know. What, what, to what extent, how, uh, how do values play into this, and to what extent are they articulated? Yeah, values are very much top of mind. And uh, I think a reflection back, you know, for, for us, one of the key values is being fair income. And being fair income is an Australian expression that means being true and real with everyone you deal with. And that's something um, that, that we often ask ourselves as we talk to vendors at Amazon or um, suppliers, like, are we being fair income? Are we being fair income? Are we being fair income? Like, it is absolutely top of mind. And I think if there's value slippage, um, companies can get into a lot of trouble. Um, and one of the key tenets of that green, that green part of the business, um, the green part of that uh, sort of spiral dynamics is is that it's a values-driven organisation, and it, and it's expansive, and it it's, it it needs to it needs to address all stakeholders, not just shareholders, and that's a pretty radical departure for if you're a listed company that's more of that orange colour. Um, so yeah, values are critical, and it's interesting from a marketing standpoint. I know millennials are far more interested um, in Far, actually, I'm not interested. They expect companies to be values-based and to express their values. And if they if they don't um, if they don't deliver on their values, their stated values, then bad things happen. And an example is a competitor of ours, which is is under about seven class action lawsuits because of the claims they're making on their products. And it's a good example of like, wow, if you breach that trust and values that are stated aren't delivered upon, it's not great. So. Right. It's it's crucial. Right. It's absolutely crucial. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's I think it's a really important tool for recruiting. I mean, people want to come to a company that have strong values and that they're expressed regularly and reviewed regularly. So, so Jason, you you have had this uh, twelve year education. You've got this PhD in this business startup, and now it's at this mature mode and reengaging the organization. And now, now you are consulting with CEOs of startups. No, yeah, I'm doing the, I'm doing something a bit silly, but yeah, I think I'm, I what I, I'm, uh, I really miss teaching. I really miss working with students. And, um, and my mother has a romantic idea that I'm going to go back to teaching, and I suddenly had this epiphany, going, wait a minute, I can take my 12-year PhD. <laughs> from the university of life <laughs> and and actually yeah, work right. with, um yeah work with ceos of vc-backed companies um 
and see if uh, and, and work with them on their culture because I and so that's that's something I'm sort of doing as a side thing and um, and I love it and I think it's uh, it's it's working out because there is a need I think um, angel and VC backed uh, companies um, they often the culture piece is is usually the last thing they think about and yet it's really foundational um, even yeah. relations you know between two founders like is that a clean relationship? Do they have any gunk in the world? Do they have a mechanism to get the gunk out? Um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, my co-founder is quite close to me because she's my wife. Um, and so right. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the hardest thing in the world in the way to do. Um, so, yeah, I love it. I love, love, love it. And I think that the, that journey as a founder CEO is, a, is an exciting one. And my, my goal is to really help, help CEOs um, uh, as they go on that, that journey, and I, and I sort of reflect and think, you know, that chief culture officer that we had early on was really helpful for me, and and I'm sort of yeah. saying, I'm sort of looking at that in a, in a similar way to these fantastic young CEOs who have great ideas and just trying to help them on the people front. Yeah. How do people follow you, or how would they reach out and connect with you yeah. um, if they wanted to learn more about what you're doing? If they want to, they could email me, jason at gdarpers.com. And that's a good place. Um, I post yeah. a few things on LinkedIn. I write for the CEO magazine. So LinkedIn is a good one. Just Jason Graham. Nolan. Right. Um, they're probably the two good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Jason, uh, this has been great. And you did not disappoint my friend. <laughs> <laughs>